So, just to just to set the stage, here are some things I noticed other people have been saying about what is distinctive about our schools. The first one was from G.I. Butler, the General Conference President and Chair of the Battle Creek College Sport, that's the early part of Andrews University. When he opened the new college, and people asked, why do we do that when the University of Michigan is just up the street? What kind of college will it be? He said, this new college will set the highest intellectual, moral, and spiritual learning objectives second to none in the land. Well, that was quite impressive. He said some other things, uh, but this was the main thing. It'll, we will teach a standard curriculum of science, logic, rhetoric, classics, Bible, and seven languages, and we won't open the school year until we have teachers qualified to teach every subject. Chairman of the board, General Conference President, 1874. And six years later, they closed the college because they disagreed about what it should be teaching. So it's not an easy question to answer. That was one. Here's another. This comes from the General Conference Education Department, Dr. Umberto Rassi, who spent years and money donated by a benefactor to teach us how to bring Christ into the classroom in every subject. The result is 1,400 monographs explaining how to do that, spread out in 40 different volumes that exist somewhere. I don't know exactly where. They may be in, in our libraries. But that was, we exist to bring Christ in every class. I remember I attended one of these seminars, maybe you have too, and somebody said, how about the math classes? And one of the associates in the education department said, no problem, the Bible is full of numbers. But it was a serious effort to say Christians bring Christ in every class. How to do it is the question. There's another one. And that has to do with holistic education. And the quotation is generally from Sister White, uh, mental, spiritual, physical powers of the students are to be developed. And that's why we have a Christian education institution. Number four, one, two, three, four. Here's another one. We have our schools to save our kids for the kingdom. Uh, the General Conference Education Department director explained why we need AAA and IBMTE, and the quick answer was because our young people are leaving the church and we need to keep them. So answer, answer. There's another one that I found. We have our schools to develop a well-designed and cooperative process uh, to bring about in the mind of students a biblical worldview. Biblical worldview. <clears throat> I was recently in Southern Adventist University to chair a AAA site visit. And I discovered how they're doing that there. They have a, 
a center in the campus that is identified as CTEB. BFFL. And that stands for Center for Teaching Excellence Biblical Foundation of Faith Learning or something like that. And they are actually developing structures, syllabi structures, that are supposed to be working for every class in that university, every subject taught that brings uh, biblical foundation or biblical world view into the class. It's something. Some teachers like it and some don't, I was told. But it's a, a, a real effort. There's another one that recently was announced. We have our schools to teach students or equip them with a conscious realization of our apocalyptic mission. It was read at a general conference by George Knight that you know very well. That's what he said. Our schools are not distinctive unless we teach our students Adventist eschatology. That's 1844, the sanctuary, the investigative judgment, and second coming of Jesus, and all the things that pertain to end-time teachings, preaching the gospel to the end of the world. He worked that out in a long paper. Uh, That's why we should be in, in business, and that's what makes us distinctive. Without that, we'll be at best like other Christian universities. Another one that I just picked up along the way, Heather Knight, who was until recently president at Pacific Union College, said, we have something distinctive here, which she called the Adventist advantage. And she outlined seven advantages that the students would get by attending personal, professional, work-related, family-related, uh, academic intellectual advantages, seven of them that she had packed together in a concept that would explain the distinctiveness of that institution. So I found all those, uh, and there are many more, but this, I wanted to ask, what's the setting for what I want to say about it? I don't know that I am any better than this. I, I don't really think so, but I, uh, and so my reflections on all of that trying to answer from my own curiosity, what do I think is really indispensable, distinctive, unique, what should be, and what would I feel free to tell the students, the teachers, the General Conference AAA, and these people, and the regional accreditation people when they come on campus, so I'll tell them all the same. That helps. It's more persuasive that way, generally. Uh, so I thought I would try to do that. So uh, so I wrote that down in the PowerPoints, and it may be easier to go through here. Let's see. Two unique features of Christian education, it's heart and soul. I know you thought that's kind of foolish and silly and simple, but that's what it is. If you give our education a heart and a soul, it will be unique, and I would be willing to stand by that with people I talk to. But first, to get into it, I believe the Adventist Church loves its education. Some of you don't believe that, but because they quarrel all the time. I think it's a lover's quarrel. I'm actually personally impressed after all these years with the affection 
in spite of the complaints, like a marriage, you argue once in a while a little bit at home to make it interesting, but you still love each other. So there's some of that. Yeah. Adventist faith and teachings are accessed through study and supported by knowledge, I think is true. I've, I've never been asked to do any work with the church uh, or plan something without bringing all these academic people together to try to sort it. Even the women's ordination, the task, most of the people in those committees were people with PhDs and something or other. They pulled them out to do that work. So I, I think there's something to that. Even controversial subjects are addressed by asking teachers to get their heads together. Knowledge-based faith liberates us from superstition and fear. I had, I had an uncle once who became a Jehovah Witness in Denmark, and he got prostate cancer and needed surgery, and he would not take it for fear. He would need a blood transfusion. In the 20th century, he died. And I sent a prayer up to God, thank you that we can take blood transfusions that we know better. And it's okay to go to a hospital that will do that. And the poor Jehovah Witnesses just had to die because they refused to let knowledge be part of their faith. So that is... uh, I think it's important. That idea of making knowledge the basis for our faith is supported in the Bible. Wisdom is undervalued as a concept in the Bible, both Old and New Testament. St. Paul, in his education chapter on Corinthians, refers to that repeatedly. And the Old Testament is full of it in the books we hardly ever study. I don't get it, but the wisdom books and all the wisdom material outside the wisdom books in the Hebrew Bible and the wisdom books after the Hebrew Bible was finished but before the New Testament was written. They're everywhere. And they're outside the Bible in the ancient Near East. It's an important part of life also in the Bible. The teachings of Jesus, notably his parables, I think are educational materials. The Apostle Paul and all the Christians were committed to it. And they established schools, and they established curricula, and we have kept them ever since. The elementary or lower-level trivium, grammar, logic, and rhetoric, and what follows, arithmetic, music, geometry, and astronomy, were the old curriculum of the early schools that were adopted by the Christians, adopting this common general education or general curriculum, were followed by Christians, and we still have it today in a way. So there's a lot of tradition why a church should love its schools. So we have primary and secondary preparatory studies in languages, communication, sciences, math, arts, humanities, and social studies to this very day. This curriculum and the individual subjects in it are not materially different in Christian education from what they are outside Christian education. So we have just taken this all from the classical period and Modified it, of course, some, but preserved it, and it doesn't differ. So we shouldn't look to the curriculum to make us distinct. Advanced studies in the faculties and departments offer majors and specializations. Professional faculties or schools prepare students for the professions 
They've done that since the Middle Ages. The professions have changed, but the principle is the same, graduate studies and research. There's no material difference in Christian education. We do the same. And at Andrews University, you can pursue three years of a first degree at Western Michigan, transfer the whole thing to Andrews, and finish after the fourth year. We may not say that to anybody, but it is true. Our residence requirement is one year to get an Andrews degree. So that means we have tacitly accepted that there is a common general way of approaching education that comes from many years ago. We have modified it, but we have kept it, and we are alike all other institutions. I have to deal with that fact when we talk about what is distinctive in the Adventist educational system, I think. <clears throat> so what then is unique? If the curriculum is shared, <clears throat> we could choose subjects or we could eliminate subjects. Would that make it unique by just selecting some things and leaving out some things? And I don't think so. Historically speaking, we have not done that successfully. We, we don't have a Christian chemistry. I don't think. Maybe at Avondale. I don't know. Ah, there's, history is common to all. We actually use the same textbooks at the use in Sydney University for Australian history, probably. So the Christian college curricula are essentially like all others. Now, we can make changes, and we probably should as we carry out our responsibility, but structurally and essentially, it is the same kind of curriculum. Some have suggested we could restrict the amount of education we allow Christians to have. For example, we could uh, limit Christian education to the secondary level or the undergraduate level. Some have even suggested that it's the graduate studies that gets us into trouble. But that doesn't work either because Christians are ambitious, even more so than others. I have met so many Christian educators who, who take out more degrees than they need. It's a kind of a disease at Andrews. They come back for one or two or three doctorates. I can imagine that, and two or three masters. Study forever and ever. So Christians, at least Adventist Christians, do not even think about restricting the scope of our education. We are at least as ambitious as other people are. That's not what makes us Christian, as we say. Undergraduate, that's it. After that, it becomes dangerous. No, we never said that. So, not the outer form. It is not the outer form that enables us to make it distinct. It is what is inside. The heart and soul makes education Christian. And I borrowed that unabashedly from Arthur Holmes in his book, The Christian Academy. I know it's hard. But that is our heritage, and that's where I would look. And I've been looking uh, for the heart and the soul for quite a few years now in my work. So what do we mean by that? What do I mean by that? What about Arthur Holmes, who helped me understand that? The heart focuses on compassion and service. That's part of what we long said, education for service in this life and in the life to come. Compassion, we have not talked about so much, but service. I think compassion is important. The common good of education benefiting all. That's what I mean by heart. 
The heart also protects education from its greatest danger of all, self-aggrandizement and pride. We haven't talked much about that in our church to make our education distinct. I think it's time. I think this pride in education is just like a cancer in a way that destroys us. How many smart people will say, I'm sorry, I don't really know that. Help me understand it. This will take us miles. Just if you put a heart into our education, the heart responds to the ethical demand placed upon Christians. That's why it happens. I think in the classroom, when we understand what our obligations are, uh, that's the heart responding. So, I've written a lot more about that, but just in summary fashion, Christian education must have a heart, and if you consistently impart this kind of a heart into it, we will be distinct. From those people who study for their own sake and not for the sake of others, those who are proud, and those who are selfish. Lots of people like that. The soul of Christian education, that's the other half. The soul of Christian education fosters piety, moral understanding. It faces the most complex problems in learning courageously and confidently in faith. The soul of Christian education invites adoration. That is, praise to God and thanksgiving for enabling us to study. Enabling us to study. I don't know if you've thought about I, you read the news about people in many parts of the world, or let me take a different example. I gave a talk to the students at Andrews about this Malala, the little girl who got shot on her way to school in Afghanistan, and she's become an international advocate for children, especially girls going to school. And she was shot point blank in the head by one of these rascals who didn't think that Children need to go to school, and especially not girls. They should go home to the kitchen. And so she's an international figure now, and she got a Nobel, I think, recently. I put her picture on the screen and told the students at Andrews, thank God for studies, for being here, for going to the library and pick down any book from the shelf and read it. That's something. So what do we do in response? Adoration, praise to God. We sing the doxology. That's the soul of an, a Christian education. And I think, now I'm meddling, I know, but I think we sometimes have missed at Andrews, not at Avondale, but at Andrews, our, our student chapel services. We do all kinds of funny stuff. I would like students to know how nice it is to be around here. Talk with your friends, go to the library, go to the teacher, go to the lab, open your computer. The whole world is there and you can study it, get a degree, make a life. Thank God for that at least once a week. It's good for the soul. Heart and soul, these are the two things I would like to see as the defining moments and points in our education. And I would feel very free to tell everybody what they are on campus, off campus in Washington or in Chicago where the accrediting people are. So who can make education distinctive with a heart and a soul that way?
Who can do it? My answer is teachers. And probably only teachers can add the heart and soul. Not the textbook writers, not the curriculum people, not the budgeteers, not the presidents of the university, but teachers who meet with students. Teachers, its heart gives it form and function as it prepares for a life of service, that is students learning about themselves. The soul gives it confidence and assurance as it readies for living spiritually towards the self, one for the other, one for the self. And it's the teachers who can turn them that way. I think facilities, teaching resources, textbooks, computer technology are costly and prized, but cannot assure the character of education we are talking about. Only the Christian teacher who cherishes the heart and soul of education can make that happen. I think. I was a teacher for 20 years, and I, then I became an administrator, and I felt sort of impotent as an administrator. Our budgets I could read and figure out whether we made a gain or a loss. Well, where's the heart and soul in that? But I remembered how it was to teach, and the greatest pleasure I take in life is to meet one of my former students who became a teacher, like David. We have two or three in the seminary at Andrews. They were in my classes. Now they're teachers. Isn't that something? Only the Christian teacher who cherishes the heart and soul of education can make it happen. So what do we need? A new breed of tertiary teachers. Accept the value of service and piety in learning. We must seek them out. That would be my priority if I went back to work, which I'm too old to do. I retired at 75, and I'm 76, and I don't like it at all. But I like my work better than getting old from it. That's what I would do. These promising teachers, and I met a lot of them over the years, have completed their studies already. I think they should complete their studies before they come to my office. I mean, if you want to drive a taxi, you should get a driver's license. I look the same with teachers. Get a degree. It's not that hard. They have completed their studies and are casting around, looking for fulfillment in the teaching profession. These are the ones we must haul in. IBMT and AAA are intended to be guarantors of faithful Christian education, distinctive education, mostly through oversight. It may have some value, I think, like an audit as value for finance. It would probably be better for our schools actively to nurture the heart and soul of their teachers in concrete and supportive ways. If we put our energy there, I think we would actually make more progress. I think there's some evidence to support that, actually, such as encouraging the teaching profession. I became a teacher for a couple of reasons. Something I read, I'll tell you about that on Sabbath afternoon. But another thing that influenced me was in high school, uh, Christian high school academy, I was able to attend one year. All the other years was in public education. But that one year, 
I, my parents moved. My father was a pastor, and so I was stranded between schools, and they sent me there for the last year to finish a secondary school, or middle school, I think it was. And on the last day of school, I was bounding down the big front steps of the ad building, ready to figure out what to do next, 15 years old. And up the steps came my physics teacher, Ralph Christiansen. He stopped me and said, so, what will you do next year? I said, I'm 15, I don't really know. I haven't thought about it. Thanks for asking, but I don't know. What do you think? He said, I'm getting older. I won't continue forever. Why don't you become a teacher and take my place? Oh, I said, really? That would be swell. How do I do that? I didn't have any idea. And he said, well, call your parents and have them sign you up for the matric. That's a gymnasium in Denmark, like A-levels in England. And I didn't know how I did that, but my father kindly went down to see the rector of that big state institution, and they let me in. And then he said, you do that first for three years, then you go to university six, seven years, and then you can come and teach here. I'll never forget it. A physics teacher. Encourage the teaching profession. That's why I became a teacher. Support teachers in training and through internships. We can do that. Pay teachers much, much better. I think you're paying them better now than when I was here. It was not enough to keep body and soul together hardly ever. So maybe not much, much, but just much better. Same at Andrews. The first thing we did was to change the weight scale when I was there. I thought it was embarrassing to underpay teachers into whose care we trust our children. Right? Can you imagine that? So we could do that. Because that's a way of saying it matters. And you matter. Expect much, much more of them. Of me, when I was a teacher. I accept that. Take the teachers into our confidence as a church and make them guardians of our young adults in church and society. That would be the initiatives I would start up in order to put a heart and soul into our education to make it distinctive, and the rest is just there. Hope that was not too radical or too boring, but that's what I've been thinking about, and unfortunately, I don't have another life to give to this. But I have some satisfaction in that during the last 20 years at Andrews especially, and a little bit at Walla Walla. I understood, without having worked it out, that these are important things. So a little thing I did at Walla Walla when I was there along these lines, they are still doing. Unbelievable, it's 26 years ago I left almost 30 years ago, I said to them, if this is so important and teaching is so important, why don't you, faculty, once a year, pick one of you? I don't care who it is. Somebody you think has done a good job. And ask that teacher to prepare very, very carefully for a long time and share with all of us, plus our friends in town, plus the faculty of Whitman College and anybody else, 
invite them to dinner and have that teacher explain what's the importance of the work you've done. Teaching research. You become the teacher of the year. Give you a big check to make it worth your while to prepare that lecture, and we'll publish it somewhere in a magazine. And they've been doing it for 30 years, faithfully every year, as a way of saying thank you to the teachers. You're the only tools we have in our toolbox to make this thing Christian. Please do it. Thank you.